When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Ask the Expert with Steph. Hello again. Welcome back to Ask the Expert. I'm your host, Steph Storr, and today we are joined by historian Christine Morgan, where we're going to discuss something a little different than our usual topics. It's not a person. It's actually not even an event or a theme, but a mythical creature. Today, Ms. Morgan will answer some questions about Melusine. Hello, Christine. Hi, Steph. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for joining us. I'm so excited to be here, and I love the intro you just did. It is definitely a fresh, interesting, new, weird topic. I know. Well, not weird. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. So in preparation (laughs) for today, I was actually reading up on Melusine because admittedly, I don't know that much about her, but I love it. I can't wait to talk about it. And I noticed that what I thought was a tale from Luxembourg actually also has versions in France, Albania, Germany, kind of all over the place. So before I even ask you to give us a summary of the story, which we'll get to next, I just wanted to know which one are we going to talk about today? Where did it, where did it originate, the one we're going to talk about today? So today's primary uh version will be from, I guess, France. But I will touch on a few elements of the myth that come from other places, because um, I think that a lot of the different versions really add to the mystery of this character, because no one knows what to believe. So um, it's, it's going to be pretty comprehensive. She's She's famous everywhere, but we'll start in France. Okay, I can't wait. All right, so we'll start in France. So what is the tale? What is the story of Melusine? So our wonderful mythical queen, Melusine, is the daughter of a human king, who is the king of Scotland, and a fairy named Prisine. So she becomes Queen Prisine, which I love because it's too fun to say. And this king and his queen, they have three daughters who are triplets. So it happens all at the same time. But the king doesn't know that his queen is a fairy, a full fairy at that. And the queen has always insisted that her husband cannot see her when she's giving birth. But the king was so excited for the birth of his daughters that he he sees, at some point, he sees his wife giving birth. And it starts this epic novel, this epic tale um, about revenge and curses and uh, love. 
and even better, genealogy, which is where it becomes really interesting. But our queen, Pracine, who is, uh, she has been betrayed by her husband. She and her daughters, uh, including Melusine, they all flee and they go to Avalon. So we have a little crossover even with Arthurian legend here. So the queen and her daughters are unhappy in Avalon without their father, but Melusine and her sisters are so angry that their father betrayed their mother that they work together and Melusine ends up imprisoning her father in a mountain along with all his treasure, all his worldly goods. And she feels justified. She feels this is a righteous punishment for his betrayal. But her mother is angry. And the queen curses all of her daughters with some magical element that they will have to either... uh, live with the consequences of, or they will have to live a good and upright life in order to reduce the consequences uh, of this curse. So each daughter gets their own. But Melusine in particular is cursed to change Uh, She becomes a hybrid form of herself, and depending on which version of the myth you use, our French myth says that she changes every Saturday into this creature. And so she's concerned. She's not married. She's not in love. um, And she's changing into this horrible monster, a curse from her mother. Um, But one day she is bathing in the woods. And a handsome king, Raymondin, walks by, hears her singing, and is completely enchanted by her. She has this mythical quality. Uh, But what he doesn't see is that she's bathing in a fountain, and below the surface, the bottom of her body, is this serpent form. All he sees is the top of her and he hears her singing. So she essentially lures him in and they fall in love, uh, a magical love. And they go on to uh, establish a massive kingdom together. She has 10 sons with King Raymondin. Uh, but she also has to hide her hybrid form from her husband. So she, just like her mother, has a condition for her husband. She says, you cannot see me when I bathe on Saturdays. That's her day of transformation. And he agrees to it. And they are married for years and years and years. She has 10 sons. But but he is convinced at one point by an advisor who does not like Queen Melusine uh, that she is meeting with a lover in secret, and that's why he's not allowed to see her on Saturdays. And he becomes so curious, he can't stand the idea. And he uh, he decides to cut a hole in the wall and watch his wife as she bathes one day, and he sees her transform into this horrific, monstrous creature. And he's terrified. And Uh, You know, he exclaims, it becomes a whole dramatic event. He goes back to court and he 
tells the people at court. And Melusine has to um, tell him that because he betrayed her and because he revealed her secret, now she has to go away. She can't stay with him. And she transforms for a final time into this 15-foot-long um, half serpent, half woman with dragon wings, and then she uh, she flies away screaming, and she leaves her her husband, her kingdom, and her sons. And the legend has it that uh, because she was such a good mother and a good Christian woman. Uh, she does return at night in secret to continue to breastfeed her younger children, uh, which is a really interesting duality for this female creature. Um, but she flies away, never to be seen again by the love of her life, King Raymondin. And that, as far as we know, is the end of the myth. That is such a cool story. I love stuff like this. I can't wait to even ask the rest of these questions. But so first, how did this story even begin? Do we know who started it and who told it the first time or kind of which of the countries it originated in? And even if there's any truth, obviously we know that these mythical creatures don't exist, but is there any truth to something that actually happened, which kind of transformed into this story? Where did this whole thing start? This is a great question and also kind of multi-layered. But since we're starting in France, I'll give you that first. Um, but there are actually um, a few earlier versions um, from different countries. There is a, a similar myth called Madame White that originates in China and as early as the ninth century, which has to do with a, a female hybrid morph creature. Um, Melusine also probably has some Celtic roots because we're talking about Scotland. So I'd assume there's some sort of oral history there. And then actually, um, the idea of a hybrid magical goddess is even earlier than that in Indian culture. Uh, they have a goddess uh, that is probably partly what these later myths are based on. But the beauty of the story of Melusine, as we've come to know it, is it didn't evolve because people loved telling the story. It evolved because it was a deliberate act of propaganda. And this happened when uh, the Duke of Berry in the 1390s were in the middle of the Hundred Years' War. England uh, and France are fighting over territory and who should be king and all those great things that we love. And uh, we come to Jean, the Duke of Berry, and he wants to claim his rightful uh, area, his territory of France, which was the Poitou region, which is Western France. But in order to do it, he had to convince the people of the region that, A, they wanted him to be in charge, <laughs> and then, B, that he was 
qualified to be in charge. So they had to like him and they had to trust him. And so what he does is he hires this poet, um, Jean de Arras, and he commissions Jean to write out this great story and to somehow find a way to incorporate the Duke of Berry and his family into the ancestral lines of the myth of Melusine. And so the, the, uh, the author does, and he writes this great epic poem. Um, I mean, it is so long, you just can't believe. It is, you know, the equivalent of, of any sort of, you know, you study the Odyssey, it's an epic poem. So, I mean, you can kind of picture it like that. And he writes this great, uh, th- this great poem, and he ties in the real history of the world and the real history of the region, and then he twists it to fit with this myth. So this poem, the Melusine poem, is actually just this masterfully crafted piece of propaganda that was meant to be absorbed by the culture and by the people. It wasn't necessarily for nobility. It was for the people so that they would support nobility. Um, And so that is how we have our first written, completed story of the myth of Melusine. And that came out, that was published in 1393. Now, when we are looking at the story of Melusine, um, we always, it seems that Jaquetta of Luxembourg and the Woodville women are constantly coming up in different articles and different stories. We got a question from a listener that says, were the Woodville women really descended from Melusine? Obviously, that can't be the case because she's not a real human, but how do you think the Woodville women tied in to the story? Yeah, so this is this is a really fun question because this is where we get into um, just the really great elements of genealogy. So we know it was written to be essentially genealogy propaganda. Uh, but what happens is the story is so well done. It's so beautiful. It's so passionate that nobles, not just in France, but all across Europe, start translating this myth uh, or this poem, and they start in the nobility to adapt elements of Melusine into their own family lines. So we actually see lots of evidence in the coats of arms of different noble houses um, from everything in, you know, architecture. Uh, built into castles or manors, uh, even decor, home decor. They were using uh, imagery of Melusine to decorate things like furniture and um, chandeliers. So everyone is adopting this story in some way. And it's because, um, you know, Melusine gets tied, of course, expertly by our author um, into crazy uh, things like the line of David, like biblical David. (laughs) She is somehow 
tied into this uh, incredible King David story um, or uh, other. Was that? Yeah, that makes sense, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. If you want to be powerful, you should be related to King David. Um, so all these families are adopting it. It's not unusual. Um, what is kind of unusual about Jaquetta um, and her daughter, Elizabeth Woodville, is that they, hmm, they kind of marry into their status. So they, like Elizabeth Woodville is not a hereditary queen. She's a consort. So this really is kind of one of those myths that works best if you are the claimant to something. So it works for men and women. It's employed by men and women, but it is most successfully employed by people who are like hereditary claimants to their title. Um, so for people who didn't like Elizabeth Woodville, this was a really great way to kind of start to chip away at her um, protections at court by kind of going at her mother. And Jaquetta takes on this title, Lady Rivers, and she chooses that very specifically because to her, uh, being associated with the Melusine myth is a status symbol. So it doesn't really seem that controversial when she takes this on. And she she does, in fact, claim to be a descendant of Melusine. Um, and then when you see um, kind of Elizabeth Woodville's tendencies, she likes astrology. She likes kind of interesting sciences. We see all kinds of um, works of horoscopes and, you know, fortune predictions. They're getting, you know, dedicated to Queen Elizabeth. They're getting sent to her and she loves them. She accepts them. They go in the Royal Library. So when people don't like her, it's this is the easiest way to chip at her support. So Jaquetta is then put on trial uh, for possible witchcraft, um, which most people would roll their eyes at, but I don't know. So people claim to be witches now. Why couldn't they claim to be witches then? She didn't claim to be a witch, but I'm just saying she was very, very open about her associations with this mythical creature. Um, and people were able to kind of twist that and turn it against um, Jaquetta and then Elizabeth Woodville kind of by extension. So again, that trial was all for show. It, it wasn't really um, serious. There was, there was just no way uh, Lady Rivers was going to have any issues. And um, of course, Margaret of Anjou comes in, steps in, stands up for her, which is important because Margaret of Anjou is from kind of that region as well. So she would have been very familiar with, with the myth also. So that's kind of my take on um, Elizabeth Woodville and her mother, Jaquetta. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense because um, Elizabeth Woodville and Jaquetta, they're always kind of lumped in and, and discussed with this kind of supernatural air about them. 
And we hear that a lot. What we don't necessarily hear though, I don't know if you've heard this one uh, in your research, but I have, I had read that Richard I was actually also tied into Melusine somehow and somehow was labeled, I guess, as a descendant of her as well. Had you heard this before? And if so, where would that have come from? As far as him being a descendant, there is sort of like a a story that is like an alternative ending to the Melusine myth, probably from a much later translation, um, where when Melusine transforms and, um, you know, flies out of the palace after her betrayal, uh, she takes some of her sons with her. And the ones who are left behind then become like the next line of um, rulers. So I I have heard that. Um, but when you actually go in and you look really closely at some of these texts, in, in the earliest versions of these, the most reliable versions of these, um, I don't see that. What I do see, though... There is a tie to Richard I, um, and it's kind of fun, and it speaks to the fact that our author of the poem, um, again, is expertly weaving in real history with this timely propaganda. So when the French translation comes out in 1393, uh, the Richard I tie is going to be a parallel to the story of some of Melusine's sons. So she has 10 sons and um, all the sons have some, because they're part magic, um, but most people don't know that. Only Melusine knows that. So all of the sons have some sort of interesting um, deformity because they are partly um, affected by this magic, by this curse. So some of them will have, you know, like one tooth that's really long or um, one of them has a paw print birthmark on his face. Um, and I think another one, like there's a patch of hair that grows on his nose. Like there's just a lot going on. Each of the sons has something. Um, but the reason that Melusine is not seen as purely evil is because in her myth, she is Christian. And so the story is that her sons are um, instructed by her to go on crusades, uh, similar to how you think about the Templars. Um, we're having the Christian world fighting with the Islamic world over territory. And so some of her sons actually go and they, in this uh, poem, they attempt to take the island of Cyprus and they succeed, and it is wonderful, and everyone is happy. But in, in real life, the people reading this would have been very familiar with the lore um, of the Crusades. They would have been very familiar with the situations, uh, the different battles. And there is one in particular, one battle in particular, where uh, Richard I, also known as Richard the Lionheart, tries to take the island of Cyprus. Um, he is not successful, but Melusine's sons are. 
And so our author really expertly wove in what he knew about Richard I's attempts to um, gain this territory. And he wove it into his story, but then made the outcome positive um, because, of course, we want the Christian world to win the Crusades, or at least the author did, uh, which is great. And then the sons sort of, um, they stay there, they take the land, one of the sons inherits it, um, and then they, the rest go off into battle again to take some more land. Um, so from these battles, these crusades, these um, attempts to take territory, not always in the context of a crusade, but sometimes, uh, this Queen Melusine and her King Raymondin become the rulers of territories like Cyprus, Armenia, Bohemia. Um, they're really trying to get to Jerusalem. Um, and that is all in addition to their, their ruling abilities in France. And, um, this is where it gets really interesting because as we go on into history, um, I spoke about Margaret of Anjou earlier. Her family was claiming the same, um, the same power over the same territories. So this is why I say she would not have been surprised um, or even that concerned about Jaquetta Lady Rivers claiming to be a descendant of Melusine because her own family claimed power over these regions in France by the same exact line of thinking. So again, this just this myth just really permeated. But that's my only tie that I really see in the early texts to Richard I. Now we know also that water is significant in Melusine's story as far as um, her not being, or sorry, her husband not being permitted to see her while she was bathing. And then um, obviously she has this tale and all this kind of, you know, what she becomes on Saturdays. So if you could clarify for us exactly what she looked like, because it seems like some of our listeners are confused as to if she's really monstrous looking and ugly, or if she still was this kind of beautiful mermaid looking, just happened to have a tail of a sea creature, but, you know, waist up, she was a beautiful woman. Um, we don't necessarily know exactly what we should be envisioning. And a lot of people, we have all our, our listeners here that requested to just confirm if it's called a serpent, a mermaid, a water sprite. Some people called it a nymph, um, a siren we got also. What would you say would be the appropriate way to describe what she looked like? Wow, your listeners are awesome. This is a great question. Um, and in short, it depends on what version you're reading. <laughs> which doesn't help. Um, if we're talking about the French version, the first time this was ever written down, I would say she is really, um, she's almost like half fish. I would describe it more like a fish. It's a little more scaly. 
um, there's not always two tails in in all of the myths. Only some of them have her with two tails. Um, some of them have her with one. Um, if you go to Germany, if you go to their translations, she is a serpent. It is a monstrosity. She is a hybrid monster. And I do think that that's probably the most accurate depiction um, because we know in the French version, the epic poem by Darras, she transforms in a way that just terrifies her husband. He is absolutely disgusted. He's, he's scared. He goes to court and he reveals her. So I think that it is later translations. Um, for example, the, the translation into Middle English, she is less... Um, horrific, which is interesting because, I mean, the the Middle English translation, they're really trying to focus on things like chivalry and courtly love, and they kind of remove uh, magic as much as they can, obviously only to a certain extent, but they soften her a little bit there. Um, I would also say she's maybe a little less monstrous, although not much, in Spain, the Spanish version. But yeah, she's not pretty. But this is important because what the author was doing in context of the time period was completely appropriate. She is a beautiful woman. She is impossible to resist. She is um, she is a Christian. She is a loyal wife. She is a mother to 10 heirs, 10 sons. She is a master architect. She expands the territory. I mean, she is so amazing. But some of those things are really masculine. And some of those things are really feminine. And if she's going to be a great architect and an expander of territories, then she also needs to be a Christian. She also needs to give birth to as many sons as anyone could imagine. Everything about this poem is about balance. So I think it makes perfect sense that in her human form, she is beautiful. But when she transforms, she is monstrous. You can get everything from a serpent to um, a siren. Even Chaucer was writing that the French really liked sirens and he liked the word mermaid. I mean, it was it was all over the place, this terminology, um, and it's not across the board consistent. I think even in the Chinese version of this, uh, the Madame White version, she's beautiful, but she's also cannibalistic. So again, everything is balanced. Uh, so you could you could easily call her a serpent or a two-tailed monster. And then later she becomes a dragon, right? She sprouts wings and flies away. So there's just a lot happening here with the imagery of Melusine. And it's it's kind of all appropriate. I know that we had been talking about the French version for most of our conversation today, but I did read something earlier in the Luxembourgish version. Um, we know that at the end of the story, this is also similar to the French version, at the end of the story, she changes to this winged 
dragon, as you mentioned, and flies off, but she does come back every so often to care for her children. But in this other version, she's locked or trapped, I guess you could say, in a rock or maybe, if, I think it might even be that mountain where she kept her father. Um, I feel like that whole thing kind of got um, twisted around, but I think she's also trapped in this rock and it is said that she appears every seven years with a key in her mouth and whoever takes the key will set her free from the rock that she's trapped in and then possibly even get to marry her after that. Do you know anything about this part of the story? Because I think that's so cool to think about that there's somewhere in Luxembourg that people may go to, to see this. Is this like a tourist attraction? Um, do people even now know this story and this every seven years with the key part of the story? Have you heard that? See, this is why the myth is so fun. <laughs> Everyone has has a hot take. Everyone has, um, you know, even specific to regions, localities. And of course, Luxembourg is going to claim Melusine. It makes perfect sense um, and it matches with the myth. So in terms of location, absolutely. This is um, this is spot on. You're going to want to go to Luxembourg. It's great. Um, they have a whole... Um, they have a tourist office and everything. They can set you up. They can give you tours of this, all the um, old city pieces and the castle. And um, as far as I can tell in the written translations that I've got, um, I don't I don't think I've ever heard of the, um, you know, she comes out of the rock or um maybe that river that's right by that runs through Luxembourg um, with the key. Um, this is, this might be like a local legend. This might be something they tacked on um, that isn't part of the original texts. And then maybe someday someone, you know, ran through town and said, Oh my goodness, I saw Melusine come out of the river. And now they have this whole new ending to her story, which I love. Um, there is definitely something to the idea that for as long as this story has been written, since 1393, um, people have been claiming that there is physical evidence somewhere of Melusine. So, for example, in our French poem, she leaves a mark on the windowsill of the Castle Mervant when she flies away after her betrayal. And even our author in 1393 is saying, you can go to that castle, you can still see the mark on the windowsill. So making Luxembourg and its surrounding areas a tourist attraction is quite literally a tale as old as time in this case. Uh, but again, this is why I love this myth. It is so dynamic. Every culture has a slightly different ending or emphasis. It's just really important um, to take these elements of cultural propaganda. And if you're going to publish them, you know, you have to really appeal to your audience. They have to 
uh, be able to go and see something or they have to relate to the scenery or they have to love the idea of courtly romance um, or be fascinated by beauty uh, combined with monstrosity. You know, it was like a, a circus show, uh, but for the medieval period. Um, so short answer is no, I haven't heard that particular version, but I love it. And I can see why Luxembourg would would want people to know that ending because I bet a lot of people come through there and want to see all the attractions. I would be ready to see that. And I am about to book a flight to Luxembourg now just to see if we're in the middle of that seven year stretch or if she's coming out soon. So the last question here that we have is actually kind of a funny one, but we all want to know this. What does Melisine have to do with Starbucks? Because it seems that she is in the logo. Is that right? That's her in the logo of Starbucks. And I'm asking you this question literally as I'm looking at my Starbucks cup going, she's a beautiful woman. That's not a serpent. But (laughs) let's talk about that. Where did that come from? Yeah, the Starbucks cup, every time I get Starbucks now, I just like say a little hello. Like, hey, girl, (laughs) she's not just in the logo. She is the logo. And um, rightfully so. You touched on this a little bit earlier when you started to ask about um, water and the elements of water associated with this myth. And you're right. Um, And it ties into this new logo for the company. um, But just to make sure people kind of understand when it comes to water, Melusine can only transform in water, um, but as it gets adapted by different countries and pulled into the nobility, we actually see several queens who adapt to the Melusine myth um, into their culture, like um, Isabella of Castile, uh, Queen Elizabeth I of England. And a lot of times the way that they're using this propaganda is to justify um, something that they are doing that involves water. So for Isabella of Castile, she and King Ferdinand are, of course, funding uh, Christopher Columbus, who is going to sail and find the new world and claim it. So she's using it to uh, justify the expansion of territory across water. So there's dominance there. And then we also see it in the imagery of uh, Queen Elizabeth I in her uh, royal portraits, which are famously fabulous uh, propaganda pieces in and of themselves. Um, but in her Armada portrait, she's just defeated Spain on the water. You can actually see a golden mermaid behind her in the Armada portrait. Um, she also was funding Walter Raleigh in his uh, attempts to come to the New World again um, and colonize areas like Roanoke uh, or places just off the co- coast of what became Virginia and a little bit of what is now North Carolina. So the element of control over water by way of the Melusine myth is um, popular. People love it. So when we start to think about why would Starbucks then adopt Melusine, their thing is coffee, right? How does that make sense? Other than if they 
needed water to make the coffee, which they do. Um, my take, I haven't found an official take. So you're getting my my hot take on the Starbucks logo here. Um, the way that I see it is when it comes to coffee, we're, we're also talking about trade. So import, export, um, of course, you can do that any kind of way, but they're specifically positioning themselves as a dominant ocean or a water-based import-export. Um, so I don't know who decided on that logo, but I would like to meet that person because it is it is so nuanced. I'm just like worried that there's someone out there that works for Starbucks that's like the real true expert on Melusine because it's so specific. But every time I see her now, I, I get a little comfort and, um, you know, it, it just feels really nice to know what it is and what it stands for. Um, and just the idea of knowing the backstory. It's it's an incredible myth created all to help nobility claim power. And they did it through a woman. Highly unusual. And then um, it was so well done. That people, you know, couldn't tell the difference really between what really happened in the world and uh, what was happening in the myth. Uh, and then women are, are queens, are monarch uh, queens, start using it because that's how powerful it was. All these cultures across Europe, and if we're being honest, some of them even in Asia, because we've mentioned uh, they have a version as well, but all these different societies and cultures are thirsty for melusine, and yet we never hear about her um, because somewhere in the 17th century, maybe in the 18th century, she kind of drops off. And and then now what we hear about is King Arthur, uh, which is perfectly fine with me. I love Arthurian legend. But the reality is there was a female counterpart and she was equally as powerful as an influence on uh, late medieval and early modern Europe. Well, I love that. And I love hearing the ties with Starbucks. And if there's any Starbucks higher ups listening to us today, please give us a call and let us know if we hit it on the head there with the uh, description of why, where she came from as far as the logo. Um, because I don't think any of us are going to be paying attention to anything else now when we see the Starbucks logo, right? <laughs> I, uh, I had a, um, I had a funny encounter on Twitter um, maybe about a year ago. I was supposed to um, actually present some of my research on Melusine at a conference in Luxembourg hosted by the Royal Family of Luxembourg. It was a big deal. Um, and then COVID hit. So we did everything virtually, which was I mean, just as great in terms of online community, but man, I really wanted to go to Luxembourg. Um, but I had a funny interaction on Twitter with someone who started tagging Starbucks all the time and saying, <laughs> uh, you need to do like research grants. Starbucks needs to do research grants for Melusine scholars. 
And I thought, that's a genius idea. <laughs> genius. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Christine. I think our listeners were, all their answers were pretty well answered. So, uh, sorry, all their questions were pretty well answered. So thank you so much for joining us. And of course, thank you again to Katie Ray, Heidi Hagen, Gaynor Robinson, and Amy Pemberton Grosshart for writing in your questions. So Christine, before I let you go, are there any projects or events that I can give you the floor now and let you tell everybody about before uh, the end of our talk? Absolutely. I have, um, I'm very excited. I've written a few articles, um, a lot of them about Melusine, but I have, um, I have my very first book that I'm working on now. Um, and I'm hoping that that will be ready to roll out um, by the end of 2022, if everything goes well. Um, and that book will be all about uh, Catherine of Aragon and the way that she learned how to be a queen from her mother, Isabella of Castile. Um, and there will be a little melusine in there because I can't help myself. It's too good not to use, but um, there will be at some point a Catherine of Aragon uh, early life uh, and journey to her role as a queen uh, coming out. Well, I can't wait to read that. And you'll definitely have to come back and talk about that with us. Maybe that'll be another Ask the Expert that Christine will be on with us. If you don't mind, we'd love to have you back. Oh, I'd love to be back. I love talking about these things, especially with, with people like you and your listeners who just, you guys dive right in. You have so many great questions and you're so passionate about history. It's just, it's so much fun to come be here and interact with all of you. Well, it was our pleasure. Thanks again, Christine. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.